The following message is by Dr. J.R. Cuevas, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. This is my favorite Sunday, and this sermon I could preach every week. And so what I want you to do is uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, which is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and just like last week, we're going to unpack one verse of the Bible. But for context, I actually want to read, starting from Luke 24, Luke and Acts were meant to be read as a single book. They're written by the same author. Um, And so what I want you to do is keep your finger on Acts chapter 1, and uh, while you're there, flip over to Luke chapter 24. And for the sake of context, I'm going to read, starting from Luke 24, verse 36 through 49, then I'm going to hop over back to Acts chapter 1 again. This is a single account. It's meant to be read as a single account, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. And here's this God's word. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were telling these things, he, meaning Jesus, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus reads hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. When they still could not believe it because of their joy, In amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, and and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Bow your heads with me, and let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon this time. Father, we praise you for a Resurrection Sunday where we can celebrate and truly celebrate in our hearts, with our voices, with our ears, with our minds, with our bodies, the risen Savior who we worship today, who we hope in, in light of all that's happening in this world. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts to receive the words that have shaped people, your people, from one generation to the next, from one part of the globe to the next, that as we see the words written here, that we would be compelled not only to hope in the risen Christ, but to act upon the reality of his resurrection. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Last year on January 26, 2020, several of us, including me, were right outside those double doors. All of us were looking at our phones. Service had ended. We were allowed to. We weren't talking about the Sunday sermon necessarily. We were talking about what had happened with the sudden death of Kobe Bryant. I saw it first. I saw it on my phone. 
pass it on to the next person. I don't know Kobe Bryant, not a basketball player. I wasn't in Calabasas, California, where the helicopter crashed, and yet we felt the need, as soon as we saw the news passed on by those who witnessed the event, we felt the need to share what we had seen with other people. Because when we understand a man to be significant, not just in the world of sports, but in the world in general, the witness of a tragic event involving the death of that man compels us to speak and to share. And then not too long after that, it was as if the world forgot what had happened with Kobe Bryant. In March 2020, it was different. A virus broke out in Wuhan, China. None of us were there. None of us at that point had known anyone who had gotten sick from COVID-19 or who had died from it. And yet many of us felt the need to speak felt the need to post, felt the need to share articles. Because we said, if we understand the significance of this virus and the global impact that it could have, we owe it to the people to speak and to share. When we understand that something is significant, that its impact is significant, that its outbreak is significant, we spread the news to other people, even though we ourselves hadn't actually witnessed the event. And then, two months after that, it was as if that was forgotten, when a video clip of an officer on top of George Floyd with him screaming, I can't breathe, they didn't stay in Minneapolis either. None of us knew George Floyd personally who, in this church. None of us were in Minneapolis at that time. And yet protests spread not only across the United States, but in Kenya, Uganda, Tunisia, South Africa, Ghana, Liberia, Nigeria, Kazakhstan, China, Japan, South Korea, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, Armenia, Israel, even Antarctica, there were protests. That's not a joke, there were. To the point where people said, silence is violence. In other words, if you believe that what was witnessed, that you saw on a clip, of what happened to this man was significant, you better speak up and you better act. Because if you understand what you saw, the significance of what happened and the impact that it could have on the rest of the world, you would speak and you would share to the point where people said, if you stay silent, that's equivalent to violence. We speak of the things that we understand to be significant. We don't speak of things that, quite frankly, aren't important. But when we understand something to be important, when we understand the significance of something, even if we ourselves haven't actually seen it, right? and we've had to tell people, did you verify that, right? Did you look at what source it came from? Are you sure it's actually real? And we don't even care because if we think that it might be true, we'll circulate it because of what we know it could cause. We speak of what we understand to be true. We speak of what we understand to be significant, to be important, even if we haven't seen it ourselves. And today, right, I understand that today the church is pressured, like it always has been, to address all these things that are happening in the world. We've been asked questions in our church when COVID-19 first broke out. Will you speak of it? Why won't you speak of it? Don't you know what it could cause in this world? We were asked to speak on whether we did or not on the issue of Black Lives Matter and the issue of racism, critical theory, critical race theory. Letters were written to Christian schools accusing them of failing our community by not addressing the things that had happened. People have been asking us, are you now going to address what's happening with the Stop Asian Hate movement? Will you, as a church, speak on the issue? These are significant events, and will you as a church speak up? I think it's for good reason that they're expecting us to speak up, because we who are part of the church, who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, understand this, that we as a church are essential because we as a church are not a country club. We're not a social club. 
We are an institution set apart by God that has a responsibility to the world. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We as a church have a responsibility to speak of the significant events that are happening in this world because we give the light that helps the world to look at what's happening around the world through the lens of God's word. That's our job. Amen. Told you I could preach this sermon every week. <laughs> The, the question is this, though. The question is this. It's not that whether or not we've, we've grasped the significance of all that's going on in the world. The question is this. Have we as a church grasped the significance of the most important and significant event that has ever taken place in world history? And are we doing something about it? Jesus Christ being crucified, and three days later, rising from the dead, according to scripture, isn't just a storybook story. It was a historical event. In Jerusalem, Jesus died, according to the scriptures, prophesied several hundred years before he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. God knew it. God planned it. It happened. He rose. The grave is empty. The event happened. What are we going to do about it? Our primary job is not to talk about Kobe Bryant. It's not to talk about George Floyd. It's not to talk about Joe Biden, thank goodness. It's not to talk about Donald Trump or Gavin Newsom or Stop Asian Hate, even though we do provide the lens to be able to see those things, our agenda is not set by CNN or Fox News. Our agenda is set by the Bible to speak of our risen Savior every Sunday. Amen. So have we grasped the significance of the fact that, now think about this, that while Jesus died for us, Jesus is not dead. If Jesus died and is still dead, number one, I don't get the point of this suit. <laughs> I brought a Hawaiian shirt up there. You'll see, you'll see me at the Easter brunch in a Hawaiian shirt because I'm excited to get into that. There ain't no point to this. We might as well make Easter about the Easter Bunny. In fact, someone told me, a non-Christian actually told me, hey, I'm going to show up at your church on Sunday, and I'm going to be wearing an Easter a bunny outfit because it's Easter as a mockery. And we might as well, if Jesus is still in the grave, if Jesus never lived, if Jesus never died, if Jesus didn't actually rise again, then let's make it about bunnies. Let's make it about Easter eggs. Let's make it about those hollow chocolates. And we might as well, because Paul said, if Christ is not alive, our preaching is in vain, our faith in it is in vain, you are dead in your sins. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, we as Christians are most to be pitied, most to be laughed at. Let's pack up and go home and stay home and shut down the church. But Jesus is alive. That's why we're here. And so now what? What do we do? In light of the resurrection of Christ, what do we do? Do we, do we just leave it as a he is risen greeting and with a he is risen indeed response? Is that it? Just like we say happy birthday. Happy birthday to you too. Or Merry Christmas. Or Happy Thanksgiving. Is the only thing we're going to do because of Easter, because of what happened on Easter, is have a brunch, which... Please all go to. I'm excited for that, too. We bought some stuff for that thing, too. So please go, right? But is that the only thing we're going to do? Or how, how are we as a church? And I don't just mean Creekside Bible Church. Now I'm talking to the church. The ones called out by God to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, to speak the word of God without fear to a world that's hostile to Christ but in a world where there are lost sheep waiting to be saved by Jesus Christ. How are we as a church going to show that we understand the resurrection of Jesus to be significant? And the answer is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And this isn't your normal Easter sermon, but it is a sermon from a text that flows out of the reality of the resurrection, and it's this. We show, as God's people, that we know how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is by devoting ourselves and the entirety of ourselves to a particular mission that was mandated by the resurrection. 
in order to devote ourselves to that mission, whatever that mission is, we need to grasp the fullness of that mission. And Jesus himself, the, wor the words of Jesus Christ, right before he went back to heaven, give us the magnitude of that mission. It explains what the mission is, shows us how big this mission is, helps us grasp the reality of it, the magnitude of it, and compels us then, in light of the risen Christ, once we say amen here, we go out there and do this mission that proves that we understand that the world needs to hear that Jesus Christ is alive. If Jesus Christ is alive and we have then the hope of a resurrection from the dead, then what are we going to do about it as a church? How do we honor that? How do we respect that? Here's the broader context of Acts, and this is such an important verse. It's sandwiched right in between two dispensations, Israel and the church. The disciples had just asked Jesus about the restoration of the kingdom. Jesus, when are you going to come again? And just think about all those times where people said, we know when Jesus is coming back. There was one elder at one church, I'm not going to say which one, don't worry, it's not this one, that in a Sunday school class passed out handouts that had the date of when he knew that Jesus was going to come back. They asked him, they asked Jesus, when are you going to come back and restore the kingdom of Israel? Because he is. There is a future restoration of Israel. Jesus will come back and make it happen. Jesus is risen. Jesus is not here physically. He's with us in spirit, but Jesus will come back. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus, come. When we pray your kingdom come, we pray for Jesus to come back and set up his millennial kingdom where we can reign with him. And these disciples now, these apostles are asking Jesus. They know what's ahead. They know the suffering that's ahead. And they're asking him, Jesus, when are you going to come back? And we like to know details before we give ourselves to something, right? When we take a job, we want to know how much we're going to get paid. We want to know where we're going to be working. We like knowing details. I guess I can see them saying, Jesus, before we do this mission, can you tell us exactly when you're going to come back? We want to know exactly how long we got to suffer. We're like that too. In the same way that a slave doesn't need to know everything that's in the master's plan, all he needs to know is what he's supposed to do. Jesus said, it's not for you to know. He doesn't say, yes, it's the time. He doesn't say, no, it's the time. He just says, it's not for you to know. Wisdom for human beings is this. We can't understand everything, and we're not supposed to know everything. Even if Google makes it seem like we can. I love Google. Um, and I love the people who work there, and many of them are here. <laughs> but Jesus said, it's not for you to know. The times are the epics. Every day that passes by, every hour that passes by, every minute that passes by, takes us one minute, one hour, one day, one week, one year, closer to the fixed day when Jesus comes back. But we don't know when that's going to happen. Nor is, it our, nor is it our duty to try to figure it out. But we know it's happening. He is risen, and we have a mission. And that's what Jesus gave us, not to know when everything's going to happen. We know the details of it in the book of Revelation. We don't know the time. But Jesus did give us a mission, and that we know. The resurrection of Christ results in a mission for his people. In other words, because he is alive, we've got a job to do. That's how we show that we believe in the risen Christ. And that's why when Paul told Timothy, you do not be ashamed of the gospel. You suffer with me. Be strong in the grace of God. The things you've heard from me, you pass it down to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And you suffer with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ who commissioned you. Do not get entangled in the things of the civilian world, but seek to please the one who enlisted you as soldier. Suffer. And then he says, and before he says to preach the word in season and out of season, before he says, to endure hardship, to be sober-minded, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill your ministry. He says, remember 
Jesus Christ. As you go about doing your ministry, as hard as it's going to be, as much persecution as, as you're going to experience, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 in 2 Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship. And by the way, Timothy, you're going to suffer as well. As even to imprisonment as a criminal. Remember that if you get thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, remember that Jesus Christ is alive and that though you're in prison, the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, as they also may obtain the salvation which is in the risen Christ Jesus and this eternal glory. He is alive. We've got a job to do. And the question is, what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to do it? There are three questions. In your, uh, in your handout, in the bulletin, there are two. That was my mistake. I sent that in early and I forgot there was a third question. Number one, how are we going to carry out that mission? Number two, what must you actually do in the mission? And number three, where are we supposed to carry it out? How, what, and where? And look at Acts 1.8. It's one verse, and, and each phrase there has, I feel like there's a volcano underneath each one that's ready to erupt to show you the fullness of what this mission is. Three questions about the fullness of your mission in light of Christ's resurrection that you have to answer. Number one, before we get into the details of the mission, it's how are we going to carry it out? Number one, how are you going to carry out the mission? Jesus says. Jesus said, but you will receive power. I'm not going to give you the details of when I'm coming back, but until then, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive power. The word for power, dunamis, where you get the word dynamite. It's the opposite of being static. When we say someone's dynamic, when we say a preacher's dynamic, when we say an athlete is dynamic, it means that they move. They get things done. Energy's flowing through them. There's life. Power is the ability to accomplish something, right? I mean, if you're a physics guy, what is power? It's the amount of work you do over time. You do work at a at a short amount of time. The shorter the time, the more the work, the higher the power. Power is simply the ability to accomplish something. It is the opposite of being a Christian couch potato. You will receive power, dynamic equivalent. And it's not power about being anything more than human. Again, they didn't turn it to Marvel or Capcom for that matter. There were no laser coming out of their eyes when Jesus says you'll receive power. They're still human. Still subject to illness, still subject to injury, right? They still have two arms, they still have two legs, they still have two eyes. No laser coming out of those eyes. What's this power that they're going to receive? It's the power to accomplish a particular mission. Jesus warned them previously that when, I, when he goes and they go, the world and the enemy will resist you. They will persecute you. They will place an obstacle in front of you. Because as the world hates Jesus, they'll hate you as well. But you will receive power. In other words, you will accomplish whatever it is that you're going to be entrusted, whatever mission it is, and when. And there's no time gap here. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not after, not when, there's no time gap. As soon as the Holy Spirit comes down, power is with you, and you get to act in a new and distinct way. The Spirit has always been present in the universe. The Spirit's always been working, but He works in different ways. Different things happen. The providential work of God, the redemptive work of God has come in stages. When the Spirit, remember that in Genesis 1, that beautiful account of Genesis 1, the world did not come about through evolution, six billion years ago, what happened this way? The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, and the universe came into being. When the Spirit hovered, creation happened. And when the Spirit came down upon those 120 people, who the world saw as close to nothing, the church was born. That is the Holy Spirit's work. That is the power that the Holy Spirit brings to God's people. And you see what happens through the rest of the book of Acts. 
in chapter 2, verse 4. He filled the apostles and enabled them to speak in tongues. He filled Peter, empowered him. Remember Peter previously, who shrunk in front of a servant girl and said he didn't know Jesus, now in trial preaching the gospel, boldly facing imprisonment and beating. And then in chapter 6, the Holy Spirit again now filled seven men assigned to take charge of the widows. And one of those seven men was Stephen, who the Spirit again gave the wisdom to preach in front of the council before he was stoned. And then in chapter 8, when the church scattered, it was the Holy Spirit again who came upon the Samaritans. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke and directed and took Philip, enabled him to spread the word of God. It was the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10. Or Acts chapter 9, who comforted the churches in Judea and in Galilee and Samaria in light of all the persecution and the hardships. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke and gave Peter the vision and said, you go to Cornelius and bring the word to him. And it was the Holy Spirit who fell upon the people listening to Peter's message that enabled them to come to saving faith. And then it was the Holy Spirit who set Paul and Barnabas apart again for a specific work to now bring the gospel outside of Judea and Samaria. It was him, the Holy Spirit, who directed Paul and saw Paul and Barnabas in their missionary journey. It was the Holy Spirit who gave the disciples joy and faith. It was the Holy Spirit who forbade Paul after directing him to go into Asia to speak there. But it was the Holy Spirit who came upon the Ephesian believers and enabled them to speak in tongues. It was the Holy Spirit who placed overseers over the Ephesian church to shepherd them. It was the Holy Spirit who told Paul through disciples not to set foot in Jerusalem just yet to preserve his life. The Holy Spirit opens doors and he closes them. It's he who empowers the proclamation of the gospel and opens people's hearts to receive that gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who prophesied of persecution and who strengthens believers through them. It's the Holy Spirit who saves people into the church and appoints leaders to care for those people in the church. He directs people for ministry. He equips people to fill those ministries. The Holy Spirit does it all and we have him with us. And we need him. Because the gospel ministry to preach the resurrected Christ to the ends of the earth is difficult and it's dangerous for several reasons. Number one, as you see in the book of Acts, and as you, you know yourselves, traveling geographically from one region to another isn't easy. It's hard enough to get to church from South San Jose. <laughs> we live where we live to minimize traffic, to minimize, we don't like to move because we don't like to move. Traveling is hard. Number two, more important, hostility towards the gospel is the natural bent of every man. You show someone a donut and they'll smile at you. You show someone Jesus and they'll cringe. Third, not only is the natural man hostile, the church will be persecuted for preaching the risen Christ. Paul told Timothy in that same letter, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not may, will be persecuted. We need the Holy Spirit. Without him, we can't do this. I, there's no way. There's no way I would do this, right? Um, I mean, I went to college to become a research zoologist and study dolphins on a boat. That was the goal. And I think studying dusky dolphins on a boat is a whole lot safer than preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. <laughs> and I thought about this. When Jesus said, you're going to go from being fishermen to fishers of men, your job has got a whole lot more dangerous. On one, you make a lot of money. Two, you'll be thrown out of the synagogues into prison. No way we would do this, and no way we can do it. When the Holy Spirit is not with a people, they cannot accomplish the work of God. Not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And yet, as the people of God... We minister within ourselves. We know our limitations. We know our, we know our abilities. At the same time, 
We have to minister to full potential. We don't want to do anything less than what God has empowered us to do. And with the Holy Spirit, that mission can and will be accomplished if we give ourselves to it. We do not serve a powerless Christ. Jesus Christ today is no frail human being. He is in his resurrected body, fully God, truly God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts, the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega. He is coming back to reign over the earth, and he has commissioned us as soldiers to do his work, and we can and will be able to do it. We don't have to wait for power to come. Power is here. The Holy Spirit came down to the church 2,000 years ago. What are we waiting for? We don't have to wait for anything. He's the one waiting for us. What are we waiting for is the question. And when Jesus said, I'll give you the power, you'll receive the power. The problem is, is we ask Christ's power for the wrong things. Jesus never said, I'll give you power to win Olympic gold medals or to make a lot of money or to get good grades. He never promised that. Jesus didn't say, just ask for common grace. Ask for the things that the Gentiles ask. No, he'll give you power to do what? To accomplish a particular mission. And so if you want to experience the power of the resurrected Christ working through you, through the Holy Spirit, give yourself to the mission of God and watch God come through and work it. That's what we do. That's when we see that Jesus is alive. Because the world hates Jesus, we preach Jesus, and you're thinking, how is this message going to go there? How are they going to accept it? And you watch the Holy Spirit open up hearts, you watch the Holy Spirit equip you for ministry, you watch ministry come out of you, you watch the provision come for you, and then you say, God came through. That's how we accomplish the mission, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Number two, in light of the resurrection then, what do we do? What do we do? What is the mission? We have a new condition. We have the Holy Spirit's power to accomplish this. We're church, Gentile and Jew, Greek, barbarian, man and woman, all grafted together as a body. Now there's a commission. There's a new commission. And he says, you shall be. So the first is you will receive. The second is this. You shall be. Not you can be. Not you may be. You will be. Status change here. You will be my witnesses, talking to the apostles. Now, we can't, here's the question, we can't witness, or we can't say we're witnesses of something we didn't actually see. Someone asked me once at the school, are you going to report the fact that he said a bad word to me? And I said, no. And she said, why not? And I said, simple. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I can't report what I haven't seen. I can report that you told me that someone said a bad word to you, but I can't report anything I haven't seen. A witness is someone who's actually seen something, who can testify of an eyewitness account. Can't testify of something you haven't seen or heard. The resurrection, though, was not a secret event. That wasn't a private event that only happened in an upper room. Jesus walked the globe, walked the earth, walked in that region for 40 days and appeared to over 500 people. And his disciples saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. He told Thomas, if you don't believe, touch the hands. See it yourself. If you want to see that I'm made of flesh and blood and I'm not just a spirit, give me a piece of fish to eat. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if there was no witness, if this is something that could have happened, but perhaps didn't, then I don't know what we're doing here. But he has risen. They saw it. They wrote about it. They taught in light of it. And we have the witness right here. And we carry out the preaching of the word of God to fully expose and fully reveal the witness, the apostolic witness. The church is built upon the witness of the apostles, the teaching of the apostles. So we have to understand something. We're not, in this sense, fellow witnesses. Now, I'm not talking about you sharing your personal testimony of your salvation. That's true, and we do share that. I'm not talking about your personal relationship with God, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's true, and we do share that. 
But when you evangelize, we know this, you can't just talk about your life and you can't just talk about your experiences. That's not enough. You need to take people to the witness that was written, the historical witness of the Bible, and show them that Jesus rose from the dead. It's their witness, not our personal witness, that matters in this sense. We proclaim about Christ what they saw. We teach about Christ what they taught. We're not supposed to die for 90 minutes and see a vision of Christ and come back and write a book about it. And no, Jesus did not appear to Joseph Smith in the North American continent to give him the Book of Mormon. He didn't do that. He left from the Mount of Olives and that's where he's going to come back. He didn't appear to me in Hawaii either. Jesus went to heaven from the Mount of Olives. The apostles saw it. They witnessed him. They wrote about it. The Bible is filled with the apostolic witness. We talk about that. They're the primary source. We're the secondary source. In other words, the only thing that we can really do is preach and proclaim and teach the word of God, which contains the witness of the apostles. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, John's talking about him and the apostolic team. What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, we have seen, we testify and proclaim to you. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And therefore, we, when we believe what they have seen, can say, though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we have not seen him, we believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And that is what the word of God can do to a person. The Holy Spirit breaks open that person's heart, puts the witness of the word of God in them, and they believe and they're saved and their lives change. And that's your personal testimony. Amen. Amen. That's why there is a danger of being innovative, being original. When someone says... I think I just got some new revelation here. There ain't no new revelation. You were daydreaming. Yes, we adjust to the culture. In one sense, Paul said, I become all things to all men. The Jew, I became a Jew to the ones without the law. I became without the law to the weak. I became weak. We adjust in one sense, but we do not alter the message of the Bible. We stick to the message of the Bible. We don't add to it. We don't subtract to it. We don't reinvent it. We don't make it more understandable. We don't innovate it. What they saw, we say. Simple as that. And people ask, so in seminary, why'd you have to learn Hebrew and Greek? The answer is simple. Because that's what the Bible was written in. No, John didn't speak in English. And Moses didn't write in Swahili, he wrote in Hebrew. John wrote in Greek. We look at the original witnesses. We look at the original language to see what they wrote. We understand it. And just as the church was built upon the teaching of the apostles, and just as Jude warned, whoever diverts from this tradition, be wary of, we continue to do the same thing. And it is a risky endeavor to do that. And it's dangerous. That's why the English word, or the Greek word for witness, is the word martis, where you get the word martyr. And the word martyr carries a sober connotation to it. When you think of the word martyr, you think of the word, you think of someone who died for their faith, because back then that's what happened to people who proclaimed that Jesus was written, risen. Because before Pentecost, those religious leaders paid the soldiers. Who knew that the stone was rolled away? They knew. Paid the soldiers to circulate false news about Jesus' resurrection. There was resistance from the beginning. And when Peter and John went into that temple and spoke and said that the man who you crucified is risen again and you need to repent and believe, they were dragged into prison and flogged on more than one occasion. And when Paul and his associates did the same thing in the Gentile regions. They were dragged, and they were beaten, and they were stoned, and they were imprisoned and flogged. 
He wrote his epistles, so many of them, as a prisoner. That wasn't figurative. He warned Timothy of the same thing. He commended Epaphroditus, who was just a messenger man of the same thing. He told the Philippians, remember, as I send Epaphroditus to you, a messenger man. Commend him because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Apparently, doing the work of Christ can cost you your life. Proclaiming the witness of Christ, saying that Jesus is risen and all must repent because he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And those who believe in him will reign with him and those who don't will be cast into the lake of fire. That brings persecution. So would you die to preach about the one who defeated death? What length would you go to carry the apostolic witness? What risks are you willing to take? What difficulties are you willing to endure? And what dangers are you willing to face? Because Jesus is alive, the church cannot stay silent. We speak. Because Jesus is alive, the church cannot stay safe. We must be willing to suffer and take risks. And because the church of God and because Jesus is alive, the church of God cannot stay sitting. We can't stay in our homes. We have to get out of our homes and get out of our region and proclaim. The question is where? Where do we go? Jesus says where to go. That's question number three. Where must you carry out the mission? How do you do it? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. What are we doing? Carrying the apostolic witness. Where do we do it? There's a new condition. There's a new commission. There's a new direction. You are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Where? Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In Jerusalem, that's where Jesus died. That's where Jesus rose. And that's where Jesus ascended from. The church was born in Jerusalem. The first stage of the church, the stage of the early growth of the church was in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, you're not just going to stay here. You're going to go to all Judea and Samaria. Yes, not, and he doesn't just say to the Judeans and the, Samar the Samaritans. It's not just talking about a people. Now you're going to go to a region, not just a part of it. You're going to witness of him and all of it. Judea and Samaria. And yes, there are Samaritans there. Yes, they may not like you. Yes, you may not like them. Remember that story in John 4 where Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman and tells him that he is the fountain of living water and that he is the Messiah and she recognizes him. And as soon as he went back to those apostles, they, they were perplexed. Why were you speaking to a Samaritan woman? That's the kind of animosity that was between them. For sake of illustration, that the, a Jewish person back then Hearing the word Samaritan would have been like, if you study world history, Americans hearing the word German back in World War I. If you don't remember that story, we couldn't even call hamburgers hamburgers. We had to call them Liberty Burgers. We had to call dachshunds Liberty Hounds. There's nothing libertarian about a dachshund. We call them that anyway. During the Cold War, hearing the word Russian during the Vietnam War, hearing the word Vietnam. During 9-11, hearing the word Afghanistan. That back then was the Jewish people hearing the word Samaritan. And Jesus said, you will not hate them. You will witness. And you need to not only witness to these Samaritans who come into your midst, you need to go out there. To where? To which part? Just across the border and then come back? all of Judea, all of Samaria. And if that's not enough, even to the remotest part of the earth, the end of the globe. In Isaiah 49.6, God said that Israel was supposed to be, because of her relationship with God, a light to the ends of the earth. It's always been in God's plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Nothing new. But Israel never sent missions team to do that because they were not called to go. They were called to stay separate as a nation. Come and see. They built a temple for that, which, by the way, is the case for the corporate worship of God. How will people know 
that God is God and only God when they see a people corporately worshiping him in the temple. You cannot testify about the living God if you don't gather for corporate worship. But Israel wasn't commissioned to go. The church, with the power of the Holy Spirit, in this new dispensation is. And not just to all Judea, not just to all Samaria. Touch every Gentile region on this planet. Get to every geographical region. Go and bring the apostolic witness to there. So, the question is, is exactly how far must a church go to fulfill this mission? Wherever there are people, so there the gospel must be preached. And we don't wait for people to come to us. We go to them. The proclamation of the gospel never discriminates when it comes to ethnicity. We preach it in every, to every ethnic group, to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, to every region. We go to the deserts, we preach it there. We go to the tropics, we preach it there. We go to the islands, we preach it there. We go to the large continents, we preach it there. We go to the east, we go to the west, we go to the places that are tranquil, and we go to the places that are hostile. Wherever there are people, there we must go. The church must not stop in preaching the resurrected Christ until every part of the earth and every people of the earth are touched by the gospel. Jesus didn't say after he rose, he didn't say, you know, right after I go, just go home, stay safe, have a pot roast, celebrate Easter dinner, add pancakes to it on the side if they even had that back then. He said, you go and you make disciples of all nations and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them all that I have given you, that I've commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The world is waiting for the church to do her job. Listen to Acts. The world doesn't know it, but this is world history. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 through 27. And he, God, made from one man. Are we all from Adam? Yes, we are. He made from one man, not from one gorilla, not from several monkeys, but from one man, Adam, every nation, every ethnicity of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God scattered man over the face of the earth. He multiplied man over the face of the earth. He created distinct ethnicities, distinct nations, distinct groups, distinct people, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God knew exactly who was going to be born when and where and why, because he planned it. Why? That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him because he is not are from each of us. Lost people are right next to God and they'll find him through you, through the message. Because even though they are groping in the darkness, next to them is someone who is the light of the world and you show it. God has always desired for the worship of him to arise as a sweet aroma from every part of the earth. Man tried to resist that. You remember the Tower of Babel when they said, let's go straight up to heaven? And God said, no, we scattered. They were scattered. Why was he scattering them? Just as a punishment? No, because God wanted people scattered all over the globe so that distinct people groups would be all over the globe so that worship would arise to him from every single square inch of the globe. And that's why I told Abraham, from you, all the families across the earth, unlike in the days of Noah, I'm not going to flood them. I'm going to save them. And they're going to be saved through Jesus Christ. But he's not here. Therefore, they're saved through the message, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which comes through the mouth of human beings known as the church. That's our weekly Sunday prayer, right? God is worthy of worship from every single part of this globe, every single part of this planet. That's why Psalm 67 says, let the peoples praise you, O God. What's this Babylonian captive thinking in his private thoughts when he, when he authored the psalm, when he says... Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Every Sunday, you think of this. When the sun rises up, a people from a certain part of the earth, let the people of God raise worship towards him from the ends of the earth because Jesus is alive and people need to praise him for it and the church needs to do her job to make sure that happens.
This was said to them for you. Now, here's the thing, though. The apostles never made it to the ends of the year. I don't think Peter made it to California. He didn't make it to the Philippines. He didn't make it to England. He didn't make it to China or Samoa or Argentina or Peru. That's our job. Your life and your ministry in light of the resurrected Christ is embedded in this passage. We do the work of taking it to the remotest parts of the earth. I thought about that just thinking about my own personal testimony. Because if you take, if you put your hand on a globe and you put it in Jerusalem and you spin the globe 180 and you go to the exact other side of the globe, you will find yourself in Hawaii. And there I was, 1,900 years plus after Jesus said this, hearing the gospel in a Hawaii golf course from my brother who was going to a church that was planted from missionaries who came to bring the gospel into the islands. We have to get out of our comfort zone because we have to bring the gospel literally to a different zone. Did Peter and John, were they really able to picture People 2,000 years later, 7,500 miles from Jerusalem near Creekside Park, worshiping the same Christ that they worshiped. We're here because we were saved by the heart of Jesus. When Jesus said, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, and I must bring them to me. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock and one shepherd. America is, California is, close to 7,500 miles from Jerusalem. The gospel spread and multiplied from Jerusalem through the Roman Empire into Germany, to England and the Netherlands, and then to, north, to the North American continent. It took over 1,600 years, and it cost life upon life upon life. You were saved by the blood of the martyrs because of global missions. George Whitfield from England to bring the gospel to America, crossed the Atlantic 13 times by ship. That's over 3,000 miles. That is what the Holy Spirit did to get the message of the gospel to this continent so we could be here. That's why if you do go to our website, our church website, and look at our ministry distinctives. It says we're globally minded. Not politically correct, but we are globally minded because Jesus wants people from all parts of the globe, every part of the globe, to recognize him as the risen Lord and Savior in whom we find forgiveness of sins because of his substitutionary atoning death. We believe in him and we have everlasting life in him, and that message needs to go everywhere. And so we take risks. Jesus said himself, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, you beseech the Lord. You beg the Lord. You get on your knees and you ask the Lord to send out more workers. We need more laborers. We need more men to be trained for the ministry. We need more people to go with these men to support them to the ends of the earth. We need more churches planted here in the Bay Area. And we need more workers, not just for our church, but for the world. And it's not just the pastors who do it. It's the people. It wasn't just the apostles who received the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. It was all 120 people who were in that upper room. It's not just the minister of the word who speaks the word of God without fear. What did Paul say? Why is he rejoicing in his imprisonment? That most of the brethren, Christians, like you and me, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. That's how the word of God multiplies. Through the bold speaking of people, of Christians. After the church first experienced persecution in Acts chapter 8. Therefore, those who had been scattered... The church that scattered went about preaching the word, proclaiming the word. You were willing to shelter at home because you felt like COVID would kill the world. 
Are you willing to get out of your home because you believe that the risen Christ can save the world? Come on, church, the answer to the world is not a vaccine. It's the gospel of the risen Christ. And we need to get out of our homes and proclaim him. You cannot stay home and save lives. We can't. If they did that, if they stayed in that upper room out of fear, we wouldn't be here. If George Whitfield stayed in England and said, you know what, 3,000 miles, that's too much. Too many sharks in the ocean. Can't do it. We wouldn't be here. And if Hiram Bigham didn't take that missionary team to Hawaii, I wouldn't be here either. And do we need to be gifted in evangelism to do it? Were the shepherds who saw the baby Jesus gifted in evangelism? They saw and they spoke. We do it all the time. It's amazing how people who say they're not gifted with evangelism are gifted with Instagram. (laughs) Did the Samaritan woman, was she gifted with evangelism when Jesus said, I am he? She went and she spoke. Did the demoniac who had a legion of demons in him, was he gifted with evangelism when Jesus said, you ain't going to come with me, but you're going to go and proclaim that he did. It's a simple thing. We know that the resurrected Christ would result if people believe in him and the salvation of all men. And if we care enough about this world, if we believe enough in that truth, then we preach. Which church is responsible? Jesus said, I tell you that everyone who has, and this is in the parable of the, the minas, the minas, I already pronounce it. Everyone who has, the ones who have the most resources, more shall be given. But from one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Last year, or 2019, in November 2019, as Pastor Bob, Pastor Cliff, Pastor Justin went to India, um, I uh, FaceTimed them from the same time zone because I was in the Philippines that same week doing some pastoral training there as well. It was kind of neat. <laughs> I'm like, hey, hello from Asia, right? And in that trip where I was doing pastoral training, uh, there were some young adults there who, in their prayer requests for this, and they had close to nothing, impoverished place, they had close to nothing. None of them prayed for money or for a job. They split up into groups with pictures of unreached people, people groups. And they were praying for visas to be granted to them so they could take the gospel to China, to Malaysia, to Thailand, to Mongolia. Because that is what happens when the Holy Spirit lights a fire in the heart of a person. That they understand that there is one hope for the world. And that's knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The burden right now is on the American church to do that. Where are our missionaries? And where are the people in our church who would say, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God because Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again according to Scripture And all who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We live in a world that is so broken. But the hope for the world is that Jesus is risen. We live in a world that is decaying, that is rotting in sin. But Jesus said... Don't go into the world just to condemn the world. You go into the world and you preach this, that forgiveness of sins is now available. Starting here, but don't stop here. Get to every inch of the globe. Because the risen Jesus will come back and gather all of his sheep to himself. And that day we wait for, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. So now that Jesus is risen, we must get 
to work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the resurrected Christ. We thank you that he overcame death. We thank you that we who believe in him don't have to fear death. And we thank you that you've given us the power of your Holy Spirit to move this apostolic witness, not just in our area, but to the ends of the earth. And we look forward to seeing that day when people from all over the globe will lift up their songs of praise and worship, the Jesus Christ who deserves it, who's worthy of it, when we see people worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we know that you're deserving of it, you're worthy of it all. And we love you, and we praise you, and we ask for strength, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.